Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Extra Extra, Read All About It, with me, Paul Cuddihy, and Chris Dolan, where we chat all things books, the books that we've been reading this past month, the books that we are currently reading, and the books that we are planning to read. We'll also be chatting about a whole variety of different things, including should you or do you judge a book by its cover, and also the whole issue surrounding celebrities writing books, uh, specifically kids' books, and then we'll also be chatting about various other things to do with books. As always, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back again. Always look forward to these sessions. Um, There's a few topics in there that could get me talking all afternoon, so I'll try not to not moan too much, living celebrities. Well, do you know, it's funny because... I think because I know we're doing this every month now, I'll read something or, or I'll hear something, see something in social media, and it kind of triggers off an idea of something that you and I could end up chatting about, which was what we've done the last couple of anyway, so, which I quite like. And then it kind of gets me starting to think about you know, different things in maybe in a wee bit more detail. The sad fact is that you actually don't need a list of things because you and I just talk all afternoon no matter what. So. But it's nice to have a little bit of a structure to it so we know what we're going to talk about. Exactly. Well, every every one of these episodes, we start off uh, enlisting the, the, the books that we've been reading. And I was going to start off, I've actually, in March, I've, I've kind of been on a bit of a roll in terms of, I, I just feel as if I've just been reading book after book. And I'll, I'll list the books that I've read and maybe just mention one or two of them in more passing, but just so, really just to show off that I've actually been reading lots this month. This bit always makes me feel like the, <laughs> you know, the dunderhead in the class. Yeah. Well, it's qual- it's, it is quality, not quantity. But um, in terms of this month's reading, I started off by reading Poverty Castle, which is a book by Robin Jenkins. I've got, I think I mentioned before, I've, I think I've got more books by Robin Jenkins than any any other author. I've got about 20 odd of his novels, and I've not read them all, so I thought I'm just going to go back through them every now and again and pick one out and read them. I hadn't read Poverty Castle before, so I love his writing. So that, that started me off. I read a book based in Argentina, by Eloisa Diaz called Repentance. And it's set between, I think, 1981, during the height of the kind of military junta in Argentina, and 2001, and it's a, a policeman. And what happens is his connections to the disappeared at the time during the Dirty War and what happens to him now. I think the premise of it promised more than it actually delivered. And I've not really checked and see whether it's a translated version and whether or I'm not... I'm just going to ask you that. It sounds like Eloise Diaz sounds like it might be. Yeah, and I don't know whether maybe the translation is not doesn't flow as well. It was good, but you know there was just a wee bit of me that you were looking for a wee bit more. I read a, a Muriel Spark novel, Memento Mori. Oh, oh I love that novel. One of my favourite novels. Would well, you know it was on the back of? I'd just been doing a search on TV for various book programmes, and Ian Rankin. I don't know when he'd done the programme for Sky Arts. It was basically just a, a programme about Muriel Spark. It was really good. So on the back of it, I thought I'll, I'll read that. And because Ian Rankin has started, he studied Muriel Spark University, didn't he? And he wrote a thesis, he wrote his, uh, his final thesis or dissertation or something, he was a doctorate, I don't know what it is, but he wrote a, a major about Muriel Spark. And apparently his first novel was attempting to do a kind of a Muriel Spark type literary novel and he realised, this is not what I'm good at, and began Rebus. I mean, I thought Memento Mori was hilarious. I mean, I thought it was, wow. you know, I've often seen, and you often hear it, particularly with actors talking about there's not great roles for older people. And this is just a novel of, of old people. And I don't know if you've read that book, The, the Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, you know, the, the guy who does Pointless. I think oh, it was the biggest. Well, do you know, it's funny. I know because we'll go on to talk about that. And he's quite self-deprecating in interviews. And he, he has said in, in a couple of interviews, I've heard him saying when he's on, he's very aware of people <laughs> sitting watching him going, 
Oh, not another celebrity writing a book. The book's really good, actually. But it, there was elements of it that reminded me kind of of Memento Mori. The fact it is predominantly, I think there's maybe one or two characters in it that are young-ish. Everybody's in their 70s and 80s and 90s. I just thought it was, there was bits in it that were just, and it doesn't happen very often, where you're actually laughing out loud. So I, I absolutely loved that book. No, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people kind of say exactly that. And also I really like Richard Osmond. I'm um, also like he comes across as a as a nice guy and a very very bright guy, so I'm sure that is a good book. But uh, but still, he is a celebrity. I, uh, I, also, the rest of us. I also read a couple of crime novels. I read a book called February Sun by Alan Parks, and I might have mentioned this before. It's a series of novels set in 1970s Glasgow. The main character is a detective called Harry McCoy. So the first book is Bloody January. The second book is February Sun. I think the third book is. Bobby March will live forever. The set, the fourth book's got April in the title, so you see, can see what he's doing. A brilliant, the character's brilliant. It is, again, there's elements, but it reminded me of the, the Life on Mars TV series where he, the character goes back to the 70s, so the kind of unreconstructed pre-PC type cops and, and how they got on. So that's the second book in that series. I would recommend it. I also read a book called Edge of the Grave by Robbie Morrison, which is it's another crime book. It's set in 1930s Glasgow. It's his debut novel. I'm going to be interviewing him quite soon for the podcast. And it's another great, it's a great book set in Glasgow. Really enjoyed it. The two main cops are like, well, first of all, war veterans. And then they're in Glasgow in the 30s where the chief constable at the time of the city, you know, wants to try and take on all the, the gangs that were prevalent throughout the city. It was really good. And there's a couple of, a couple of twists towards the end that I wasn't expecting and did kind of take me by surprise. So I'm really looking forward to, to speaking to him about that. So how many books is that all together? I'm not finished yet. Oh my God. I also read in a book that I think you've read anyway, Michael J. Malone was a guest on a recent podcast and I read his book, A Suitable Light. I should say, just in case MD's picking up any outside interference, I've got workmen uh, working on my driveway today, so they're busy drilling stuff. So just to give it that authenticity. That, That's all about real life. Yeah, yeah they, they're out in the rain doing real work and I'm inside talking about books. <laughs> So A Suitable Lie by Michael J. Malone, which is a, a different take on the whole issue of domestic violence, which was really interesting, where the main, the victim is a male. And obviously there's there's a lot of parallels in how, how he is as a victim and how it comes about. But obviously the kind of dynamic of knowing that physically he could deal with this, but knowing that he can't, because then he becomes the the perpetrator rather than the victim. That, that was absolutely, I thought that was a, a stunning book. And then the other book I read was a book called The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, which is this book where, again, it's a, it's a woman who a lot of things have gone wrong in her, in her life, in her job, in her work, etc. And she gets to the point where she's not really sure if she wants to continue and finds herself transported to this midnight library. And it's this idea of, you know, how do you deal with your regrets in life? And if you had the chance, you know, almost to come back and, you know, that what if, what if I did this or what if I hadn't done that? And getting the chance to, the Midnight Library lets her see the different lives that she could have had and whether or not it's the life that she would have wanted. It's a really good book as well. It's amazing. Uh, and Michael G. Malone, by the way, I think is a fantastic writer. Uh, I've read a few of, uh, of Michael's and I think they're tremendous. That's a great book. Uh, but he's a great crime writer as well. Uh, really, really good writer. So, yeah, yeah. Glad you enjoyed that one. Listen, over to you now. I've... Right, well, God, I've, I'm only going to mention <laughs> two books here. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still blaming my work and reading loads of scripts is my excuse. Uh, but uh, and I've not read these days, and I'm hoping this is going to change in the near future, but uh, I've not read these days has got some work uh, relation to it. So the two that I've, I've read uh, over the last week or so, one is Murder at the Mela by Leela Soma. Leela's written other books before which I haven't read yet, uh, but it's her first crime novel. 
I think I'm right in saying that Leela's woman, maybe in her 50s, I think she's a teacher in Glasgow somewhere. And she's written, a, well, I suspect it's going to be the, begin, the, the, the first of a series of books with her with the protagonist uh, being D.I. Patel. So it's a, he's, he's an Indian Hindu character, a Glaswegian. It's all set in Glasgow, but set up kind of amongst the, the Asian community. It's, it's a good rip road and tale, you know, and uh, it's page turns to find out who, you know, who done it at the end of it. But I found out an awful lot about the world of, of the Asian community, particularly the division between the Indians and the Pakistanis, or more specifically between the Muslims and the Hindus and Sikhs, even more specifically the Muslims and the Hindus. And I found that really interesting uh, and how that kind of plays out in Glasgow. And that in some ways they kind of feel united because it's kind of a general racism against them and they get very similar, certain parts of their background and culture are very similar, other bits are very different, obviously. But there's also, you know, because of Kashmir and the history of Pakistan and India, there's there's also tension between them. And little things, I mean, just really tiny things that I never, I've never thought of before. Like apparently, particularly among the Muslim community, but Hindus as well, they love iron brew. Apparently, it's a real thing. You go into a, an Asian household. Actually, I've got a couple of friends from that background, and I think about it. There was always iron brew. I never really particularly thought about it. That's because Muslims can't uh, drink alcohol. And apparently, particularly iron brew, because it reminds particularly the older generation of the vimto that they used to get uh, in India way yeah. back in the day. So it feels like a taste from home. So apparently, they love iron brew and love the adverts and all that stuff. And they're all big, mad iron brew fans. So I found all the things like just really interesting about it. It's quite, it's quite kind of a, an, an eye opener on community in Glasgow. I don't know shamefully enough about, and it's good. I really like the characters in it. They're, they're likable characters. Because one of the things I was going to ask you, because obviously nowadays the you know there's a whole raft. I mentioned a couple in those list of books of of Scottish crime books. So it's quite a a busy market. There's obviously a place for different books. You know, you've introduced a character with a couple of your books as well the kind of female procurator fiscal. I suppose everybody's always trying to think of a new way into it. And, you know, although the crime genre itself, it's the characters, I think, that lead the books. If you can think of a different character and different aspects of the city or the country, that probably helps in terms of finding a wee niche in, in, within a, a crowded market. That's what everybody's trying to do. What, what's, what's the new take? You know, what, what can you do that's different from other people? So, I mean, uh, Leela's got, you know, got a real in there because, you know, I've never read an Asian policeman detective before. Uh, so that's just really interesting. And you're right. I think actually, although, you know, as a page turner, you do want to find out, you know, who's the murderer at the end. I think that all good crime novels, you're right. I mean, it's, the spine of it is, you know, trying to find out who did it at the end. But really what's holding you are the good characters. So, I mean, like Rebus, uh, I think even particularly the best of them all and the granddad of them all, Laidlaw. It's really Laidlaw, you know. Although you do want to find out who done it, it's, it's Laidlaw that's fantastic. I think of all the kind of cults from different, all the famous ones, you know, right back to uh, Sam Spade and stuff like that. It's the characters we really, really love. Can I just give you a book recommendation, actually, just when you said, well, certainly in a, a Scottish context, there's maybe not any Asian detectives. I read a series of books by a Canadian writer called Osma Zahanak Khan, and her detective is it's like a kind of double act, and her, the Muslim detective is Essa Katak, and his detective partner is Rachel Getty. Those books are set in Canada, but they're really brilliant because it's obviously they, they talk about the crime, but also the culture of, of the different communities that they're having to deal with in terms of the kind of religious side of things and the cultural side of things. They're really, really, I think there's about three or four of them. They're well it's worth it. And it sounds like no dissimilar territory. I mean, Patel has, you know, his, his kind of uh, next of kind of uh, under his command. There's two people that under his command and one is Giver Powell. They're both Scottish, traditionally Scottish as well, uh, not from a being background. And one's a racist and one's not. 
but also Patel, and I'm not giving it in the way here because it's revealed in the first uh, in the first couple of pages. I think Patel is going out with a Muslim girl, and that I mean that, that that's almost as bad as a Catholic going out with a Protestant. It actually does remind you that it reminds me of kind of Glasgow 30, 40 years ago, you know, when uh, you know that was a big issue. So yeah, it's it's going into all that stuff. So it's not dissimilar to, to those books. You mentioned you had there was another book you were going to talk about. Yeah, um, so um, as a possibility of doing a radio play, um, I've done quite a number of adaptations, as you know, of radio plays. And there was somebody brought me this actually. It was a, the radio producer said, "Do you want to think about doing this?" And it's uh, it's a book that I was convinced I'd read, and also I was convinced I had. So when when Bruce mentioned to me, I said, "Oh yeah, I've got that." Yeah, years ago I read it. I never found it, and when I when I bought it and read it, I don't remember it at all. Yeah, I was convinced I'd, I'd read it. Eric Linklater, who was actually born in Wales but was raised in Orkney, and he was uh, around from the kind of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and he he ran for the SNP, the very new SNP in 1933, and Cunningham Graham and others had you know just founded the, the party some five or six years earlier, and he runs for it in a constituency in Fife, and he's written a novel around that called Magnus Merriman, uh, which is about a guy, not him, but kind of him who is running for election for the SNP in a constituency called Glen Luce, which I presume is made up uh, in Fife. Uh, and it's it's an absolute, it's so acerbic. I mean, he even though the fact that, that Linklater himself actually did run for the SNP, and Merriman, his character, is running for the SNP, he rips through the SNP. <laughs> he's, he's absolutely brutal. But he's also brutal with everybody else. So, you know, the Tories are running, the Labour Party are running, all these people. So it's one of these novels which just takes delight in that it hates all its characters. Um, and it just sends them all up outrageously. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's very dated, I think. Um, so if you did do an adaptation of it, you'd have to... I, I wouldn't update it from the 1930s. The election is supposed to happen in 1933. And I wouldn't update it from that. But the language of it and everything else, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, how a writer writing... I think he was writing this book in the 1940s or 50s. But it still sounds a bit... reads a bit like almost a Victorian novel. It's quite kind of... Uh, language rich in a way that I don't think you would do it quite that way any longer. But it's also real people who you begin to recognise, you go through, so you recognise, oh, that's Ramsay MacDonald. Uh, there's a wonderful send-up of the poet Hugh McDermott. He's got a, a poet guy who's who's uh, who's in the SNP and it's clearly Hugh McDermott. And apparently, linked to the palate of Hugh McDermott. What Hugh McDermott made of this book, I'd love to find out, because by God, does he send them up something rotten. He really does. This, this mad poet writes stuff that nobody can understand and you know, he, he disagrees with himself and he's this crazy character. But it's certainly, I mean, it's been really interesting. I would love to adapt it, actually, because it's very funny. And this, it's also interesting from, you know, we were talking about almost 100 years later from the, the fictional election, 1933, so 90 years later. And a lot of the issues are the same. I mean, slightly different way of tackling them and, you know, and stuff. But basically, there's a lot of resonances and echoes for the election coming up in a month's time. So it's fascinating. So it's called uh, Magnus Merriman. And it's by Eric Linklater. Right, well, fingers crossed that uh, we get a chance to hear your adaptation as well. Yeah, that'd be good. I mentioned that, that one of the things I was wanting to discuss was this idea of either do you or should you judge a book by its cover? And the reason that this uh, issue came into my head is one of the other books I read this month was a book by Ellen Feldman called A Bookshop in Paris. I'm just going to show you the cover. Obviously, people can't see this because it's just an audio. It's an, a couple who are embracing... You can't see their faces, but they're the kind of central image. There's the backdrop of the Eiffel Tower in Paris and some of the buildings. Apparently, it's a passionate story of survival. A bookshop in Paris, the war is over, but the past never leaves you. Now, it's very much, and I showed the, the cover to my wife, and she said, right away, she said, well, that's obviously a woman's book. 
you know, maybe obviously the idea that women, more women read books. I think I got out of Tesco, so obviously maybe they're thinking there might be more female readers that are in Tesco's and to pick it up. And the reason I, I picked it off, off the shelf was because it had the word bookshop in the title, because I'm a sucker for anything that has the word book in the title. And it's basically set between Paris in 1954 and then 10 years later uh, in New York. And the main character is in New York in the 50s working in a publishing house. She's a single parent. But then the story goes back to Paris and how she was running a bookshop in Paris during the Second World War when the Nazis occupied the city and what happened and what took her from there to New York. It's a great story. It's a really great story. It's not, I mean, I've discussed either in this or in another podcast, this idea of the misnomer of chick lit that, you know, it's either books you like or books you don't. And it kind of disappointed me in a way that obviously the, the cover design is, I think, designed to appeal to, I think, female readers that a lot of men would probably just, I don't even think they would catch their eye because they would move on to something else. And I just thought it was nope. quite interesting of, you know, obviously you're wanting to catch that readership, but are you losing a readership because of that? You hold up again, because I think it's more than just the, the, the fact there's an embrace. It's very pastel so real pastel colours. And that, the, the font is a quite feathery font. I mean, everything is aimed at the female market there. Rightly or wrongly, it just is. And I agree with you entirely. If I'd seen that in a bookshop, I probably would have hardly noticed it, because I assumed it's very genre very much a kind of a romance, yet you're telling me it's not. I mean, it's interesting about, you know, you know I know this, you, you know it too, from you know, books you've had published, there's always a bit of talk uh, about you know, what do you put on the cover. So for my, my two Maddie books, crime books, um, I'd, I'd always thought that, the, although I loved the colours and they were designed by a guy called Mark Meekin, who I think is a bit of a genius, actually. I loved the, the, the covers of both books. But I, I was told, I didn't think, I think other people told me that that's not how you market crime. And I went into to bookshops when, the, do you remember bookshops? Uh, they used to be open. Uh, so I went to the bookshop, went to the crime section, and it actually is amazing that the vast majority are grey and black covers. The vast majority. The author's name is nearly always bigger than the, the title of the book. Uh, it's funny, I've got that book. I was talking to you about Edge of the Grave, which is a, it's a brilliant cover and the, the actual lettering stands out, but it is kind of kind of black and grey and white, so... Absolutely. That's, that's exactly a grave uh, and kind of moody uh, noir, literally noir. Uh, that was slightly different because the name is, is, is smaller. Partly one of the things that the crime people tend to do, crime publishers tend to do, is put the name really big, even if it's not well-known, because people assume he, he or she must be well-known. The very fact they put it in big layers means, you know, I've never heard of Jim Smith, but he's obviously big because they put it in really big layers. So there's a kind of obviously a science behind this. And I was always thought that, you know, I was possibly losing sales, uh, even though I thought my cover was, was much better than any of those covers that I saw in, in Waterstones and other bookshops. And I loved the covers, but they were putting crime readers off. But I've then I heard since that other publishers say, well, that's not necessarily true. It kind of stands out a bit uh, and all that. So I, I think it's one of these things that people say it's a science and it's not. But there are, there are, I was just trying to think of really classic covers of books. The two that I thought of, and just kind of looking through bookshelves just before we came on air, what do you call it? Uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, which, which became, I think, now I must have not looked at the book closely. I'm assuming that the, the film poster came from the original book poster, but it may well be the book was republished after the film. But that image of just the, the, the makeup on the eye, one eye only, uh, just looks weird and threatening. And the other one is Psycho. And again, I don't know which came first because it's the same image they use for the film, that the word Psycho, which is broken in two, kind of shattered. Uh, and I don't know whether that came from the film and then the book was republished that all the time, but that's when you see it now published, that's what it's always published with. So certain book covers do sh- scream out. You know, and I do think covers are hugely important. Just to finish off with my book, I've got this theory. And again, it's a Mark Meekin cover and I really like it. 
and I'm sure every writer says this, but I never think enough. There's never been enough copies of my book Red Legs sold, even though it's been the best reviewed novel I've ever written. Uh, and I still think it's probably the best novel I've ever written. And I'm convinced it's the cover. And I don't know what it is about the cover, but I'm just saying, why, why wouldn't people? Or, or is it the title? Does Red Legs not work as a title? Is it that cover? Because anybody who does read it then comes by and says they really enjoyed it, but people don't tend to pick it up. Um, so what is it that makes people pick up a book? I think if we knew that, we'd, we'd all be uh, getting million pound deals for, uh, for books. Because I think sometimes they can be like a work of art. Because if you think, you know, you mentioned getting into bookshops and obviously there's the, always the shelves as soon as you go in and there's tables full of books. What is it that, that catches your eye? Because then obviously once you go in upstairs, say for example, Waterstones in, in Turkey Hall Street, you're then just rows and rows of shelves. And I think... I'm not sure if it was you that told me this about is it somebody told you when you when you've got a book out. You know, obviously people will just see the spine and it'll just have the title and your name. Take the book out and either just turn it so that the covers facing out or just go and put it in a more prominent position because you'll definitely sell copies of your book because people need to see it. Something needs to catch their eye in order to, to pick it up. It was Des Dillon first told me that. So uh, if I for a while there, I think it's I'm not sure if it's still true or not, but. Dolan and Dylan, we used to be quite close to each other in shelves. So it became a war between me and Des. If his book was facing out the way, because you know about every fourth or fifth book faces out the way and the rest are spine forward, you know. So particularly if Des's was facing out the way, I would put it sideways and put mine facing out the way. <laughs> and I decided this is this is uh, self-defeating. So we ought to be helping each other. So we then, if I saw both our books there, I would make them both face out the way. And he tells me he did the same thing. Uh, but I have to, I've told my family and things like that. He's even a bookshop and mine's spine on. Turn it out the way. Or put it on the, the, you know, you know, there's always a, a desk where they say, what we're reading this week, or, or just a desk, which is just shouting out at you. So take a couple of books and put them there. There's no doubt that people, and, and I know that from being a buyer, if I'm in a bookshop and I'm just wanting to buy something and I'm not getting anything specific in mind, if it's on a desk, or if they've bought to have a spine out, then sorry, uh, cover out, then you think, well, that must be quite good. Absolutely. I now do suspect that the writer themselves has been in and done it. So I'm sure I presume it's not just Des and I, the only people who do that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm guessing most writers will do that. I'm sure they probably do. Uh, and I'm sure I must, uh, you know, the booksellers themselves, the staff must go, oh, bloody hell. Clearly, I can tell who was in the shop today. Chris Dolan, Des Dillon, Paul Cuddy, because <laughs> all their books are like, <laughs> and they weren't there this morning. Exactly. Um, and so they're probably right back in again where they were before. Advice for any, any writers out there. <laughs> Always on the Extra Extra podcast, uh, always give wee clips of the latest podcast and then the one that's coming up. And the latest podcast is with a writer. We've spoken about a book before, uh, The Beatles 101 by Vicky Riley. And here's just a wee short snippet from her podcast chat with me. The first of the ones that you did mention was Roald Dahl. So it was was all his books. Or was there any that kind of stood out for you when you were younger? Yeah, yeah, there there are. Like the very first Roald Dahl book that I read was probably Fantastic Mr. Fox. And so he's just he's just the author that I remember reading first, even though I probably did read other books first, you know, like picture books or Dr. Zeus, I suppose, actually. Like I didn't come from a from a bookish family. There weren't really books in my house. My first memory of reading of, of books was my granny's house, actually, because she had a she had these two books. I mean, she had all our sort of Sydney Sheldons and Catherine Cookson's and stuff like that, but I knew that they weren't for me. But she had this book of fairy tales and she had this book of songs. It was like it was kind of like it looked like a hymn book in that it was sort of like cloth. 
but it was like old folk songs or something. And I didn't really know any of the songs, but apart from Red River Valley. So I just used to like read this and it had like the notations and stuff. And then it had the words to the song. So like I remember singing Red River Valley all the time, just reading this book. But even though we didn't have books in our own house, my mum, as soon as she could, took me and Gillian to the library. So we were like library users first and foremost. We didn't actually start to like own books until later. And it was Roald Dahl. It was probably the first books that we owned. My favourite ones, like because I'm a twin, so like at birthdays or Christmas, we would get one each and we would get a different one. So my sister's favourite Roald Dahls are probably different to mine because she'll probably favour the ones that she owned over the ones that I owned. The ones that I got were the BFG and the Witches. They, they're, they're probably the, the, the two that I remember most and sort of because I, I reread them all the time as well. Like, despite the fact that we were now, like, getting books and going to the library and stuff, and what we weren't into, like, class, like classic, like, even now, classic children's books weren't a thing. Like, I've never read Anna Green Gables. I've never read Heidi. I've never read The Railway Children or any of those books. I'm not familiar with them at all. And so it was just, I, I liked the naughtiness of Roald Dahl. Obviously, you know, Chris, we, we spoke about Vicky's Beatles book before, uh, which I, I say I would thoroughly recommend. She did hear the last chat we had about it and it did get in touch with me because we were both surprised that maybe she was a Beatles fanatic given she's she, you know, she was much younger, but she says she's older than she looks. So. Is she? She doesn't look, well, what is it? She heard I thought she was I, I didn't, like, I didn't want. I didn't want to ask. No one dies to ask her. <laughs> yeah. I was going to flag up just, just a one wee bit of book news that is coming up in the month of April, uh, World Book Night on April the 23rd. And what they always do is they always choose a selection of books, which then they send them out and people can give them away. I've done it in the past. So it's a whole variety of a mixture of nonfiction, fiction books, old books, new books. If you go on their website, www.worldbooknight.org, you'll get a chance to see what those books are. I'm not sure how they're doing it this year or whether they're just sending books out to specific organisations, because it used to be you could apply to be a World Book Night giver, choose a book, and then they would send you a dozen copies, and then you would just give them out. Obviously, that might not be practical in the, the current climate, so I think they'll give you the information. Uh, but it's a really great idea, because obviously it's just trying to encourage reading and Absolutely. promote reading, so it's, it's always a, I think it's always a really, really positive thing. For on uh, book news, I'd be very remiss of me not to uh, mention my, my favourite festival, which I still glory in the title of Honorary President uh, of Ullapool. So um, last week, week before, First Ministers said uh, no festivals until later on in May, so that's scuppered Ullapool Book Festival, despite as the, the organisers haven't done so much work to you know, all the mitigations, all the protocols, all the distancing, checking with the local police, checking with everything. It just became impossible. So Ullapool is back online. Uh, it will be promoted fairly soon. Uh, there's a great lineup of people uh, come along. Ullapool always do things really well. So I mean, for instance, I'm actually going up to Ullapool because that's allowed for work in about a month's time. And we're going to record the interview about my book with James Robertson, actually in Ullapool. And there's going to be a few like that. But I'm recording ones that I'm sharing down here, but we're going to have music and images of uh, Ullapool on it uh, as well. So there's a great lineup. The, the Highland Book Prize will be announced as, as every year. Donald Murray's coming. Uh, Jim Carris, uh, the, the great poet. 
Peter Gagan, the, the political writer, Leela Soma, we spoke spoken about, Mondra Amela, Linda Cracknell, Tom Devine's going to be speaking, which will be fantastic and really interesting, and uh, Ambrose Parry, so both Chris and Marisa, I think, are, are going to be going there. So, so Ullapool Book Festival, look out for it. It's a fantastic festival. It's always just a bit different from any other festival. Uh, but the... also I Write, which I'm very involved in, is starting up soon too, and it's, uh, it's going to announce its list soon. I know I'm there, which is nice. Uh, what, are they, what are the dates for these festivals? Ullapool Book Festivals, what they're going to do now, instead of having it over the weekend of the 7th and 8th of May, which it would normally have been on, they're now going to do every Wednesday night right into uh, the end of June, beginning of July. So it's going to be every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. There's going to be an Ullapool Book Festival interview or whatever happening. I write is going to be more during the actual time. It's a bit later. The dates have been given them, but forgotten them now. It's a couple of weeks after they would normally have been on. Uh, and they're kind of going to spread it over basically 10 days. And I'm just looking as if they get a lot of really good writers coming too, but they, that's still under wraps about who's coming when. Interesting, I was going to, you mentioned Donald S. Murray. So I was just going to talk about the books that we're currently reading because um, you mentioned before a book that he'd written called The Dark Stuff, Stories from the Peatland. So on the back of that, I, I got it. And I've just been kind of working my way through that book, just through reading a chapter every other day. It's quite a nice book to read slowly, but it's really, it's quite... Not the usual stuff that I would read, but it's quite fascinating. Um, I'm tell- obviously talking about his own upbringing, but then going over to Ireland and just looking at the various lands of, you know, the concentration of peat and how that's impacted on the land and the people. And it's it's quite fascinating. I mean, Donald has the ability to make everything interesting. We had a chat at some point about uh, older writers when do people, you know, become managed to get uh, books published as uh, older people. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And Donald's been around as a writer, both a poet and as a factual writer for many years. But he wrote his first novel when he's in, I don't know what age Donald is. I mean, he's, he's about my age or older, I would say, um, because he's been retired from teaching for quite some time. So he, he's now, I mean, doing incredibly well as a, as a fiction writer. And I would, I would urge anybody to, to read As a Woman Lay Dreaming, which is about the I.O. Laird disaster in 1919 in, uh, in Lewis or the new one uh, in A Veil of Mist, which is astonishing. And again, he does base a lot on, on historical, his novels are, are novels, but they're, they're always, well, the two anyway so far have been based on historical facts, uh, and they're always amazing, but he writes them so well. They are great, so yeah, brilliant writer. Um, and the other book that I'm reading is a novel called Almost Then by Margot McQuaig, who's been a guest a couple of times in the podcast. She's a friend of mine, uh, I've known her for, for many years. And she's just written a, a second novel. It's just been published. It's actually officially coming out on April the 1st. And it's a story of twins. And the, there's a kind of traumatic incident in their childhood. And they've kind of drifted apart. But something brings them back together. And there's a kind of whole lot of family dynamics that need to be sorted out. So I'm kind of about a third of the way through that, which is really enjoyable. And it's always, you and I have done this before, where you're reading books by people that you know and you know, I, you know, I say I've known Margot for about 20 years and remember just sitting talking and one of the things we'd always talk about was how we'd love to end up writing novels and we've both been lucky enough to do that. So I'm always quite, always, you know, the fact that this book's come out, it takes me back remembering 20 years ago talking to her about kind of literary ambitions and it's nice, it's always nice to see that being fulfilled. Fantastic, absolutely, yeah, it's a great, great story. I mean, two, the two things I'm reading just now are, are, are not novels. Uh, one is poetry. Jim Carrath, who I mentioned, has come up to Ullapool, or rather we're doing it in Glasgow. We'll be on in the Ullapool Book Festival. Jim is uh, the Glasgow macker, the Glasgow poet, even though actually most of his poetry is set around Ayrshire, and he's from Ayrshire. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm taking a long time over these because they are quite dense and quite long poems. 
are phenomenal. I mean, he's just brilliant. Uh, and it's very much about farming life. He was, he was raised on a farm and he, he talks a lot about farming life. And the poems are great. But the other really interesting thing that I'm doing is um, a friend of mine uh, who is at St. Andrews University got in touch. And he said that somebody had been in touch with him. He, um, he, he specialised in working in Latin America. And somebody, a friend of, him, of his, who's an American working in Buenos Aires, got in touch with him to say, look, I don't know if you've been just now, but in a kind of a, a literary political centre, a kind of political writing centre that he's involved in, they've discovered there's a whole series of notes, of letters rather, a whole series of letters by a guy called Robert Bontine Cunningham Graham. Scottish, and this guy, I didn't know much about him. And he asked Patrick, and Patrick said, you know, that's amazing. If you'd asked me a week ago, I'd have gone, I've never heard of him, but I've just finished Chris Dolan's book, Everything Passes, Everything Remains, but he talks about him quite a lot. So, so I know a guy who would be interested. So uh, we've been in touch. Uh, I'm part of the Cunningham Graham Society. We've been in touch. And uh, this guy in Buenos Aires has now sent us photocopies of these letters, which are letters mainly to his editor. Um, so Cunningham Graham was a writer as well as a politician. He founded both the Labour Party and the SNP, amazingly, and left both. But he also wrote a lot and a really, really interesting writer. And so we discovered all these letters that we didn't have before. But I'm reading them on the screen. He is an atrocious writer in the sense of actually writing with a pen or you know, whatever. He's a great writer, but he, he, I mean, honestly, it's unbelievable. And, and he's got very old Spanish. I mean, he's an English speaker. He is, he's Scottish, um, but he's, he's a fluent Spanish speaker. But he's got quite a strange way of, of writing in Spanish, quite a kind of strange formal way. So when a couple of us have been desperately trying to decipher these things, and honestly, it's like, it's, it's a word every 10 minutes. He stared at it, look at the other way around, try and kind of bring it up and enlarge it on the screen. We've only got them on screens. Desperate trying to figure out what it is. And it's, it's, it's actually very interesting and slowly putting together a sentence and it's a kind of eureka moment. Going, oh, I finally translated that bit. And it's usually something really boring, like, good to talk to you again, Jim. How are you doing? <laughs> but it took about half an hour just to get that one line. But there is some interesting stuff now as we're going through them, kind of with this guy, uh, Cunningham Graham, and when he was living in Buenos Aires, or living probably that time in Paraguay. He dies in Buenos Aires, and I think the last letters are probably written in, in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Uh, so it's actually very interesting just piecing together some information about this great, extraordinary individual and uh, writer, uh, and just kind of putting together some little things we didn't know about the later days of his life. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. We mentioned earlier on, just kind of touched on the fact that we were going to maybe have a wee chat about celebrities writing books. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing even before we get into it, what your view on it is. And the reason this came up as something I thought would be quite good to discuss was a couple of things. Idris Elba, who obviously the actor, and he's apparently signed a global multi-book deal with HarperCollins Children's Books for a range of titles that are set to launch in 2022. They're always now, children's books, aren't they? Yeah, because they've obviously... it's. They obviously see that as a, a cash cow, but it's. I think when you actually when you read into the the fact that he's he's made this deal, then first of all you're always a bit cynical, saying is he going to write the books? And then when you actually read the story, he is going to develop them with I think a, his write his writing partner, which effectively means they're going to use his name to sell the books, and somebody else is going to write them, and they'll probably be they'll lavish fortunes on them. And then the other one was Paul McCartney, who'd already written a kid's book, uh, I'd say written in inverted commas. Hey, Grand Dude is now written. There's another one coming out called Grand Dude's Great Green Submarine. And again, there'll be somebody that probably is writing these books. And cashing on the Beatles. I think, obviously, from a publisher's point of view, there's part of me that I can see from a hard-nosed business sense, you know, if Paul Cuddy signs a global multi-book deal with HarperCollins Children's Books, 
they're not going to sell as well as Idris Elba. But there is a balance there. I think, and obviously, I think for a lot of people that are probably writing kids' books and probably writing really great kids' books, are they not getting the financial rewards or the promotion that they deserve or the attention or even the book deals because all the money and all the interest is going to... So David Walliams, David Baddiel, uh, Dermot O'Leary, Idris Elba, Paul McCartney. You know, I'm not sure if they all grew up with this ambition to write kids' books, but I think... And one of the boys from McFly writes kids' books as well. They, I think they see there's money to be made there, and obviously the publishers do as well. And I'm not really quite sure how, how if that's a good I, thing in terms of publishing. I mean, the particular thing about the kids' books, you, you can't help but think, oh, come on, you know, it's just using your name and it's another thing to do. I mean, part of me says, you know, you're, you're a good singer, you're a good actor. I mean, stick to what you do. A lot of things about very, very successful people uh, annoy me, probably because I'm not a very successful person. The other thing that gets me is them doing adverts. I think, you know, why, seriously, how much money do you need? You know, why do an advert? Why write a kid's book? Why stop somebody else from getting stuff out there? Now, in a way, I think it wouldn't matter. You know, it's open to anybody to write. And I do think some of these people are good writers. I mean, the one I remember from before, um, I absolutely resisted for years to read anything by Ben Elton because I thought, no, he's just, He's made it as a comedian and then he made it as writing uh, stage shows for London and stuff like that. And now he's going to do books as well. I mean, bugger off. Until a couple of friends of mine kept saying, honestly, they're brilliant. And I finally read Gridlock and another one and they were very funny and I did enjoy them. So th- these, these people quite often are talented people. Man, they can do different things. It's worse in Britain than it is in most other European countries because of the net book deal. The problem is, you're right, Paul, I think it forces all the other books off the shelves. It's very difficult now in the way books are sold in Britain to actually sell the back catalogue of anybody or lesser writers. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. And particularly since supermarkets started uh, selling books. So people are now buying most of the books in supermarkets. They're only getting the top 20 titles. The supermarkets in particular are going very much of those big names. So it does mean that, you know, uh, I, mean, I presume still Julia Donaldson and people like that would, would still get their, their stuff read and, and sold. But an awful lot of really, really good professional children's writers or ordinary writers simply don't get a shot because it's been taken up by people who are already incredibly successful anyway, don't need the money, and some of whom are not that good. I mean, I've read, I read one David Williams book, Billionaire Boy, and I did, I have to say, in the ending made me laugh out loud. It was hilarious. But I'm not sure, and David Baddiel, I think, has written, I've not read any of his books. I've absolutely no doubt he writes his own books. I don't think oh, yeah. he would be the sort of one that would have a ghostwriter. I've absolutely no doubt that Idris Elba is not going to write his books. Uh, I'd be very surprised. And Paul McCartney. It's interesting as well in terms of novels for adults. Hillary Clinton apparently is, again, inverted commas, writing a, a political thriller, her debut novel with an author, Louise Penny. So I'm guessing, again, Louise Penny will do all the work. She might interview Hillary Clinton to get the kind of inside story on the kind of machinations of American politics. But James Patterson and Bill Clinton did it as well. They've, they've written a couple They've done a couple together, and again, I mean, he's a big, I suppose he sells books himself, James Patterson, but it's the Clinton name that allows people to to put a hook on it. I suppose it's a balance, because I say I read that Richard Osman book, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was it was really well written. I've read one of Graham Norton's novels, which I thought was excellent, which really surprised me. I, I mean, I really, I'm a big fan of Graham Norton, I think he's a brilliant broadcaster, but his, his novel was actually really good. So I suppose you can't discount these people, and as I say, from publisher's point of view, you've got an immediate audience, you've got a, a recognisable name. So if you're bringing a book out, it's just, it's, I think it's more probably the cash advance that these people get and the, the level of advertising and marketing and publicity in order to make them bestsellers to recoup that money is to the detriment of other 
good writers who could maybe just do with a wee bit more help, either financially or in terms of promotion, etc., to help their careers? I'm no doubt. You know, I mean, some of these people all be depending on what they do. I mean, Idris Elba, I just, I don't know. I kind of guess that, you know, he's an actor, you know, so he knows about storytelling. I can guarantee you when those books come out, he'll be interviewed. And if anybody's listening to this, just remember I said this. The interview will basically be about how he used to tell these stories. He would make up stories to his kids and then just thought, either he thought or his kids said, oh, that'd be great if we could have that as a book, Dad. And that's what gave him the idea. And, you know, far be it for me to be cynical, but I'm thinking, nah, I'm not bad. That's what the, the, they'll all say that. You know, I'm sure Paul McCartney says that about you know, his children, grandchildren and stuff. Although, again, what I would say in terms of defence of someone like Paul McCartney has been Paul McCartney and the Beatles, I'm not a fan of his work after the Beatles, so I don't know. But certainly the Beatles and the couple of albums after that, so maybe into the first couple of Wings albums. What McCartney is very good at is telling a story in a song. Think of Eleanor Rigby. You know? I mean, it's a great story uh, and, and so concise uh, in, that, in that, that little song. Or She's Leaving Home. These are great wee stories. So I, I suspect that McCartney is actually you know, a good storyteller. So you're right. In some ways, I think, you know, it's fine. And, you know, I'm kind of interested in people doing other things. The problem is, as you say, it's the way the whole book market works. Yeah. Is these people do force the rest of us off the shelves uh, and we less, don't get the budgets. Uh, I'm less, uh, I mean, I may maybe being over critical of, of the celebrities. I'm less critical of the celebrities because it's a kind of variation on the old Mrs. Merton quote to David McGee. What is it you, you what is it that you first interested you in the millionaire Paul Daniels? It's like Ted Elba, what was it interested you about the million pound book deal for writing kids' books? If somebody's going to offer you, I remember uh, was it Pippa Middleton at the time when her sister was getting married into the royal family and they were making a big deal about the fact that she apparently had this wonderful backside and she ended up, she got a £400,000 book advance to write. I don't know if it was a book, I don't know if it was a cookbook or it was a, a book about how to run a home. I can't remember, it was something really inane and the book absolutely flopped. And in a way I was quite glad because I thought, I don't blame her. If somebody comes to you and says, I'll give you £400,000 advance to write anything, you go, thanks very much. It's the publishers who then, it's their, it's them that are doing that. It's their, they're driving it. And then if they don't get the rewards and the sales, then that's their, their own fault. So that would be more where my criticism would be. Absolutely. It's, it's raw capitalism, you know, and, and very little to do with what, what the best stories are, or the best writers are. Uh, and some of them might be good writers and some of them might not be. And as it turns out, I'm pretty sure Richard Rossman will be. I agree with you that Graham Norton, I've heard several people say it's good. I've not read his book, but I've heard a lot of people say it's good. So I, I don't, you know, I think some people can be good writers, but uh, yeah. It's, it's about how everything's promoted and then how professional writers, people who do it for their main living, you know, don't, don't really get a look in anymore. And, and that's a problem. Listen, I'm, and I'm quite happy to admit that if in the off chance that something remarkable happens and I become a celebrity and somebody offers me a wad of cash to write kids' books, I'm in, I'm in there in a flash. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll wipe this interview. Exactly. <laughs> I exactly. always supported it. Always supported <laughs> celebrities writing kids' books. One of the other things that, w- that I've been doing on these extra extra podcasts is just giving people other podcast recommendations. So there's two or three that I was wanting to mention. Uh, the first one is a podcast called In Writing with Hattie Crisell, who is a journalist. I'm not sure if it's the Guardian, she, or maybe it's the Telegraph. I can't remember. Obviously, they're complete opposite ends of the political spectrum, but she writes for one of the big English broadsheets. But she does this podcast where she basically interviews writers about the kind of writing process, about how they get involved in writing you know, how they go about writing a book, where they write, you know, the kind of successes and failures, some advice. It's absolutely fascinating. She said some really big names in terms of guests. And you know, I think they, most of the interviews the last 45 minutes to an hour. And I think for MD again, who interested in books, 
or in writing, I think it's well worth uh, listening to that. So it's called In Writing with Hattie Crisell. The other one is a really interesting one. I think I mentioned this to you before. It's a podcast called The Offcuts Draw with Laura Shaven. And she basically interviews, again, writers and gets them to pick four or five things from their draw that didn't get made. So whether it's the unpublished novel, the play that didn't get performed, the TV series that wasn't commissioned, the film script that didn't get the green light. And she's, I think she is an actor. And she gets her actor friends to they'll kind of an actor a wee bit of it. And then she goes, she'll chat through the person, how it came about, what happened. It's utterly fascinating because, particularly because it's a lot of successful writers, but then they all they obviously still have failure and rejection. And sometimes it's rejected out of hand. Sometimes it's something which you'll probably know about in terms of radio and TV. It gets it gets right up almost to the point of getting done. And then at the last minute, the rug's pulled from under your feet and then you have to move on to something else. It's a really, really brilliant podcast. Sounds great. And yeah, yeah, every writer's got stories like that about the how my life had been different if only that film that, that and this is true, had Penelope Cruz signed up for before I'd been heard of her right enough. But yeah, everyone's got those stories. So that's fascinating. I really fancy that, actually. I think that sounds really interesting. Yeah, so that's called The Offcut Straw. The only other one I wanted to mention, which is going to be coming up soon, probably in the next month or so, is a podcast called the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And the only reason I mention that fancy is because... Fancy that, fancy that. <laughs> I am doing that with... It's, it's me and a fellow Duran fan called Molly Williams. And basically, it's 40 years since their first album, They've had 14 studio albums. So basically, we're going to go through each podcast episode, album by album, going through it, track by track, chatting about our highlights of the album and telling the story of the band, interviewing other fans as well. And just, just kind of, it's basically a podcast for everybody who is a Duran Duran fan, which obviously is MD who knows me, knows that I'm a Duran Duran fan. So we've kind of, kind of started the process off. And it's, it's kind of a bit like this where... You end up, it's great fun because you're talking to people about something you're really interested in and you can end up, certainly with the books, reading books that I wouldn't otherwise have read. I get loads of recommendations with with this. Almost this kind of research, as it were, I've been kind of listening back through all the albums, which is great because it was a real trip down memory lane, taking me back 40 years till I was a teenager. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to launching that and, and getting involved with that. Yeah, that sounds great. I must admit that does sound good. I'm too old to be a Duran Duran fan, but uh, I like the stuff. And then, because you and I did a few folk versions of that on uh, guitar and fiddle, which was hilarious. I thought, yeah. So I kind of got into Duran Duran more after that. Actually, I started listening to more of their albums. That I actually liked them more than I realised. I always liked the singles, uh, but didn't know them that well. But yeah, no, nah, that sounds good. Because it's funny, I did tell I did tell Molly the story of of the thing the book launch from my Duran Duran short stories book, and we played a couple of songs in the pub, and one of the guys in particular. Uh, who played the bass guitar, a friend of mine, and he obviously came along and he did it, but I, I could tell he was like thinking, I can't believe I've been dragged out to play Duran Duran in public. Um, so that's, uh, I'm looking forward to doing that podcast. Uh, it was brilliant. As well as this. I'll be listening, man. I'll be listening. Uh, in terms of the next podcast episode of the Read All About It podcast that's coming up, it's with a guy called Nicky Alt, who is from Liverpool, and he has written... A number of really successful plays and a couple of films as well. He's a big Liverpool fan, and I got to know him. You know, for anybody who's a Celtic fan, they might remember in the last couple of years in the Pavilion Theatre in Glasgow, there was a thing called Celtic the Musical, which basically tells the story of the club, and there's lots of songs in it. And obviously, for fans, it's brilliant. Nicky wrote that. He'd, he'd written one for Liverpool, which is his team. I'd gone to see that, and uh, Celtic loved the idea. They've done that. He's 
he wrote a, a really brilliant play called One Night in Istanbul, which is all about, I think, Liverpool winning the European or the Champions League in 2005, which was subsequently turned into a film. He's a really good guy. Um, so here's just a wee clip of him chatting to me on the Read All About It podcast. My main sports teacher was Mr. Murphy. He's been a scout for Celtic for years. I don't, did I tell you the story about meeting him outside Celtic Park? No. Very, very weird moment for me, and it's involved with books and writing. That guy was on my case constantly for years. This is a guy who walked into, into school with a Celtic bobble hat on every morning for football, for training, for games, as we call sports, was games then. Uh, and he was always on my case, always on my case, because I was like, naughty, I wouldn't conform. I could play football. And he, he said to me, you know, you can go and be a football and stuff. And we'd have an argument about Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalgleish at the time. The reason I'm saying this, that guy was always on me, always on me. And I never listened and I never listened and I never listened. Suddenly after we had Celtic the musical, the play, I'm walking outside Celtic Park when Celtic played uh, Barcelona one night. And this guy shouted me, this old guy, like 80 years of age, just shouted me through the crowd. And I'm going, what's that guy shouting? What's that? Nicky, Nicky, Nicky. And I walked up to him and he went to me, I cannot believe you've written Celtic. <laughs> Do you know what, Paul? It was one of the most surreal moments in my life. This is, I know it's a little bit off topic, but it's to do with teachers. And that guy said to me, I knew there was something in you. He said, but I didn't think it was this. <laughs> and so it, that was a really weird moment. But anyway, just jumping back, I, I, I'll reiterate, I'll tell you that story one day because it, it, it was an amazing thing to happen to me outside Celtic's football ground. But anyway, teachers introducing you to the right stuff and, and adults introducing people to the right stuff. Well, anybody introducing you, it is, it's everything. And the, the Papillon book was perfect for me because it was a whole load of adventures. And I thought... I didn't know you could do this without pictures. And suddenly I was in the book and I was upstairs in the bedroom. And my mum and dad were like, well, what's going on with you? And I'm like, because I was always out, outside of the house playing outside. And I went, oh, this book. And, and they were really happy I was reading it. And anyway, to cut a long story short, because it is a good ending to this story, I went to Mr. MacDonald, my English teacher, who was from Ireland, and said, can't we have anything like this? He was all Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. No, 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 no. I ended up being quite disobedient in his class and having trouble with him. And he was reporting me to the headmaster and stuff like that. We found out only like 20 years later on that that guy probably could have given me some kind of literature, but it would have been the right literature for a school. We found out he was in the IRA, so, <laughs> which was weird. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to this guy, get me some books about Papillon. He probably wants to bring me all these revolutionary tales about Che Guevara and all kinds. So he was hiding this, what was going on in his other life. This, this is what they found out of the guy. But he was my English teacher probably for about three, four years. And I think your connection with a teacher can be very important when you're at school. So obviously that, that's coming up next week, the podcast interview with this is great. Nicky yeah. O. Yeah, and it's the kind of, he's, he's very much... You know, football is a big thing, but in, in the course of the podcast, he explains one of the, I can't remember, it's a famous theatre in Liverpool, which basically him and a couple of guys through the plays they put on there almost rescued it because it was like plays that drew in an audience that would normally have gone to the theatre. And I think it was one of those things that, you know, it was plays about working class life in Liverpool. And then once people started going to the theatre, thinking, well, this is for me, I love this. And it, you know, it, it helped 
you know, retain this theatre in, in Liverpool. But his his plays are, are absolutely great, and uh, he's fascinating talking about books as well. So it's a bit like the Pavilion in Glasgow, you know, kind of. Uh, it's really really good at kind of uh, putting your own shows for its audience, it knows its audience inside out, and puts on the stuff that you know um, sells well to them, which is great. Now, in terms of of this podcast, we're almost at the end. Normally, what we do is we mention the books that we're planning to read next. And I'm not sure if April will be as quite as prolific as me, uh, as March has been for me, but the next book I'm going to read uh, once I've finished Margot McQuaig's novel is a book by a woman called Eliza Lorello, and it's called Friends of Mine, 30 Years in the Life of a Duran Duran Fan. So it's a memoir. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm hoping to get her on that other Duran Duran podcast. But it's again, it's... She's based in America, so it's a different perspective as well. But I just uh, I thought that would be quite interesting just to get somebody else's perspective on on that. So that's that's on my next to read, and then I haven't decided what the next novel I'm going to read. I'll just I'll decide as and when I get there. Well, the one I'm going to read next is uh, I'll hold it up for you, but it's just uh, it's a it's a play actually, and it's a it's a Spanish play. It's called Budapest un silencio atronador. Uh, Budapest uh, a deafening silence, and uh, I mentioned in it. And what it is, is I'm really tickled with this, actually. Pretty sure I knew, even knew you at the time, but uh, um, you've probably heard that uh, I used to, for about 10 years, I used to travel back and forwards to, to Pamplona in Spain for long weekends, about five, six times a year, and give classes in drama writing uh, before I started working at Glasgow Caledonia University. And one of the earliest ones, in fact, I think it might be the first class I ever did, had a guy in it called uh, Victor Iriarte, who's a, the, the writer of this play here. And Victor came in, I think he'd been a writer and a journalist, and he's one of these guys you knew for the minute you met him. You're a great writer. Youngish guy back then. This is about 2005. He actually quotes me in, I think he says 2005. Uh, we brought two of his plays over to play pie in a pint. Uh, one of them was, was called Wheesht, which was about a guy who gets so fed up with people in a cinema audience unraveling sweets and talking on their phones and making a noise that he pulls a gun out and kills them, which got the biggest response I've ever seen from a, an order more audience where I was like, everyone, yes! Uh, it's a great moment. But you know, that's a very funny play. It was also it was better than that as well. It's a whole number of things. A great play. Anyway, uh, Victor's been writing away, and he has just won the the Lope the the, the Lope de Vega Prize, which is the most important theatre prize, not just in Spain but in the Spanish speaking world. I mean, he's he's just he's now suddenly just made it with this play, Budapest: A Deafening Silence, um, which is about a kind of a Spanish. Uh, he's, he's called the, the the angel of Budapest. He was a Spanish uh, guy who was a, a civil servant, and and he and more because his life had to coincide with Franco rather than being anyway a Francoist. But he worked under Franco for his entire life. But he saved something like about five thousand Jews from going to Auschwitz. Victor's written a play about it, and has won this enormous prize. It's a massive work. I mean, it's a really huge play. Uh, I started sort of just looking at the beginning of it, but it would take about four hours. It's got a huge cast. I mean, it's a really really ambitious piece. Uh, but in the in the in the, the kind of the, the introduction, um, he talks about the the, the writing of the play, and he he said I kind of had this idea, and then I suddenly remembered uh, something that Chris Dolan, a Scottish playwright, once said in a class that I was at, uh, and he, he told this little story. I won't tell you what it was. He told this little story that I quite often tell about you know ideas. Well, I will tell you very quickly. Things about you know when does the drama start? And I said if you're on a, a train, say in London, and you notice that there's a guy who always gets on at Ealing and he always gets off at Embankment. He's always on the eight fifteen and he always gets off at Embankment, and he's clearly dressed to work in, in the city in some way and stuff like you know. And he does it every single uh, Monday to Friday without fail, and then one day he gets off a stop earlier. Up until that point, there's been no story. A story starts there, and for some reason, Victor says that 
kind of opened up how he's going to write the play. He says, just that one thing. So I found it really interesting, a creative writing teacher. You just don't know what's going to work. You don't know what it is. So you kind of throw stuff at, at, uh, at students and new writers and you know, new writers and you are. And you just, and you know, what will work for one won't work for another. You just don't know. So in a way, it's actually quite nice to, to hear that something actually worked for somebody who's now become one of Spain's leading playwrights, that, uh, and that there's something that you, know, you almost said just kind of by the way, you know, off the cuff and boom. It's, 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 it's opened up somebody's kind of writing uh, juices. So. so I'm going to read the play and I'm thoroughly look forward to doing it because it's a fantastic writer. So that, suppose, that's, that's the next book for me. I suppose at, at one point, hopefully when things open up and we get to travel again at some point, you'd, I, I'm guessing you'd love to see that. A live performance of that? Oh, I'd love to see it. I'd love to go along with Victor in Madrid. And, you know, because it's, we're all in the same situation, there won't be anything on in Madrid for at least another, probably about a year, really, before big plays inside theatres are going to be on. Then, yeah, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping, I've been in touch now with Victor, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to be at the opening night, you know. I would, I would absolutely love to go along to that. And also part of my plan for next year is to go back and uh, teach, not this time in Pamplona, but the woman that quite often kind of gets me over to teach is, and suggests I go and, and work in Logroño for a while, so... I'm hoping to see Victor next year, and I would love to see that that play. I'd also love to try and get it on in Scotland somewhere. It'd be a big undertaking, but, you know, it sounds like a, a play we should try and get on. And then at the opening night, you'll probably have a wee name badge saying, I am that Chris Dolan. Exactly. Too blue and true. <laughs> I'll tell everybody in the bar nonstop, you know. Did if, you it want if it wasn't for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, sadly, we have come to the end of the, the third episode of the Extra Extra Read All About It podcast, which uh, is always uh, lots of great book chat and I always really enjoy it. Oh, it's really nice. I just feel as if you to sometimes do it at night time with a glass of wine. Same time again next month. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll try and try and catch up with your reading. There's no chance of me doing that. So if you slow down a bit, I may have a I may have a slight chance. <laughs>